Have you ever been a guest in someone's house? And, uh, they're ha- and suddenly, like, you're, you're having dinner. Maybe this happened. Well, I'm an American, so uh, forgive me. Um, but it was American Thanksgiving this last weekend. And uh, maybe have you ever um, gone over to someone's house, maybe for dinner, and suddenly uh, conversation turned really personal? Not, not toward you, but like the family suddenly begins discussing family business, right? And you're just sitting there going, I, I'm not sure if I should be here for this. I'm not sure if I should be here for this uh, sort of conversation. And um, that, that awkwardness of, that you feel. If you felt a little bit like that when I was reading chapters 48 and 49 of the book of Genesis, I, I wouldn't really blame you if you felt like that a little bit this morning. It was two long chapters, and it's really two kind of very intimate chapters of us kind of stepping into this family as they're really having a, a, a very intimate family moment. As Jacob, uh, the patriarch, the father of the family, is about to die. In fact, he dies at the end of chapter 49. And he calls his sons to him. And first he calls Joseph and, his, and Joseph's sons to him. And then he calls the rest of his boys to him. And he just spends this time kind of praying over them, blessing them, and sometimes speaking directly into their lives. And as, I, as, I, as we're reading this together, I was like, wow, you know, I feel a little bit like I'm at that family dinner where I'm just kind of eavesdropping and kind of like, oh, let, me, let you guys have your, your moment here. And um, it's a really intimate scene. It's a really personal scene. And, and it's a really, really difficult scene for us as the church, reading it, you know, thousands and thousands of years later, um, we're, we're from a different culture. We don't, we don't get all of the cultural nuances that are going on in this text. And so not only are we kind of, you know, a fly on the wall on a really intimate family scene, but, but some of it's like really even difficult to understand. Um, I want to show you something, actually. It's amazing. These chapters are actually referenced in, uh, in the New Testament. These chapters specifically are referenced in, a book of, in the book of Hebrews, in chapter 11, which is called sometimes the Hall of Faith. You have all these stories in Hebrews chapter 11 of all these great exploits of faith that the, the Jewish people, you know, the heroes of the faith, and, and how they, they lived out their faith, this is the, the, the highlights. It's like I used to watch Sports Center back when it showed highlights. And you used to watch Sports Center because you wanted to see the highlights of the game of the night before. And Hebrews chapter 11 is like the highlights of the Old Testament. Here's where faith was exhibited and expressed. And of all of Jacob's life, this is what we have. Hebrews eleven twenty one. 21. By faith, Jacob, when dying blessed each of his sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. That is the highlight of Jacob's life of faith. Here in this chapter, this this blessing over the sons is recorded by the author of Hebrews as this is the highlight. Now, we have to understand a little bit because we've been reading through the lives of these patriarchs. We understand that Jacob, there's not a lot of highlights of faith in Jacob's life. Jacob, for a lot of his life, was a man of spiritual failure. Uh, almost far more and far longer in his life than he was a man of faith, right? And Jacob's almost the story that tells us in the Old Testament more than any other patriarch. Jacob is the one that 
gives us hope that God could have mercy on sinners like us. Jacob's just not a good guy at all. But God met him, and God changed him. God revealed himself to him. God in his mercy saved him. God gave him faith. God transformed him. God sustained him. And and here now, at the end of his life, this is the highlight. So so the question, as we look at the chapters this morning, uh, that I'd ask and that I've had to struggle with this week as I've been kind of preparing and working and reflecting through this chapter, is twofold. Uh, number one, in what sense is, are these last words of Jacob, in what sense are they an expression of faith? Right? Just trying to understand the text. How is, how is this faith? And then secondly, what do these, to what do these last words point us to that might encourage and deepen our own faith? Well, those are two questions I kind of struggle with every week here. But, um, but here, in these chapters, was actually a little bit more difficulty. So first I want to just kind of, it's going to be a, a weird disjointed message today, because that's how I had to approach it, to be honest. I, it was hard for me even to approach these two chapters. So first thing I'm just going to throw out here is just three key themes that, that hit through these two chapters. I can't go through every verse, but here's three key themes that point to Jacob's faith. The first is that, the first theme that we get through these two chapters is that there's a promise that awaits. There's a, there's a promise that awaits. And Jacob understands, he realizes there's a promise here that awaits for his children and his people. And we focused on it a little bit at the end of last week. Remember last week? We, last week, chapter uh, 47, is all about how the children of Israel began to prosper and bless and to multiply in the land of Egypt. And at the end of that chapter, kind of our last point last week was Jacob reminding them, listen, Egypt is not Edom. Or sorry, Egypt is not Eden. Egypt is not the promised land. Egypt is not the land in which God had told our fathers that we will prosper and multiply. Egypt is not the promised land. And so here in this chapter, we get some of that here as well. Uh, it's right in the beginning. Right when, right when Jacob, uh, where Joseph brings his sons to Jacob, he's a feeble man at this point. He's just, he has to, it says he has to summon the strength to even talk to his sons and grandsons. And he says to them, this first words to them in the chapter, verse 3, Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz, another name for the town of Bethel. God Almighty appeared to me at Bethel, Luz, in the land of Canaan, and blessed me. He said to me, Behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply you. I will make you a company of peoples, and I will give this land to your offspring after you for an everlasting possession. Jacob, he's 147 years old right at this point, and his mind is going, his health is going, he's about to breathe his last, but he vividly recalls his meeting of God at Bethel. He vividly recalls how God met him there, how God changed him there, transformed his life. That's where God changed his name from Jacob to Israel. Jacob, the heel grabber grabber to the one who struggles with and contends with God. And he uses his breath to testify to his son and his grandchildren of God's faithfulness and God's promise. As I said, he's seen, he's seen his children grow fruitful and multiply. We, we talked the last couple weeks about this idea of migrating to a new land and we're a church filled up with immigrants. 
And uh, for th those of you who migrated to Canada, who immigrated here, you know, that's what you want to see. You want to see your children, you know, bl be blessed and to prosper in this new land. That's why some of you guys came here, so you could have a, a new life for your kids. And Jacob has seen, you know, that immigrant hope. He has seen his kids you know, be fruitful, be blessed, multiply and prosper in the land of Egypt, but he always wants to remind them. And his first words to them here in this chapter are, remember, this is not the land that God promised us. This is not the land that God met me. When God met me, he told me, I have for your family as a child in the, the line of Abraham, Isaac, and now you, Jacob, I have made a special promise to your family and this is a promise that was passed down to them and it was for the nations of the earth, but the, the promise of blessing to all the nations, God has selected one family to choose and to set apart. And he said to Jacob, this I have given you. I'm, I'm setting you apart, your family apart, and I'm going to give you this land, but it's not the land of Egypt. So Jacob's reminding his son Joseph and his grandchildren about this. That Canaan, that, that land, Bethel, this land will be given as an everlasting possession. It's reiterated at the end of these chapters. Look at the final words, the final words he gives to his son at the end of chapter 49. His final command is, I am to be gathered to my people, bury me with my fathers. I do not want my bones to rest here in Egypt. Take me back. And, and we're going to see it in, in chapter 50. This actually is quite a procession. It's quite an undertaking for uh, Jacob's children to have to do this, to bring his bones and, and, and bring them and, and to bury him in the cave where Abraham was buried and where Isaac was buried. But he knows and he's instructing him. It's so important for him to get his children to understand, even with his last breaths, that this world, this country, this nation you're living in, this blessing you're experiencing is not our home. We'll come back a little bit to that theme. But that's one aspect of how this episode demonstrates Jacob's faith. A second theme is the future of Israel. So a second key theme that runs through these two chapters is the future of Israel. Not, not Israel the man. Jacob's name was, name was changed to Israel. Not, not him, though, as a man. But but. But as a nation, as his, as his sons are going to become heads of tribes, and those tribes are going to be confederated together into the nation of Israel. And um, this is actually interesting. It's the first time in uh, Genesis uh, 49-28, this is the first time in the Bible this phrase, the 12 tribes of Israel, are used. As Jacob is blessing each of his sons, these sons are going to become the heads of tribes of a confederated nation. And it, it's, so Jacob is speaking, he's, this is of faith, he's speaking of the future of these confederated tribes, and he prophesies over them. And I don't get this exactly, to be honest, I don't get it. But, but it seems like at least in the lives and the families of the patriarchs, before they would die, they would not only extend their hands over their children and bless them, but in, in, a, in, in some sort of way that I can only imagine being directed by the Holy Spirit, they would they would pronounce blessings over them, and they would prophesy over them. So he, he brings his children together, and he actually says to them, he's aware of what he's doing. And he says to them, gather yourselves together that I may tell you what shall happen to you in the days to come. 
And so he's speaking prophetic words over his sons who are going to become these tribes of Israel. And Moses actually, um, Moses actually affirms Jacob's status as a prophet because Moses actually affirms that he did this, that what their father said to him as he blessed them, blessed each of them with the blessing suitable to him. And so, so we get this affirmation that Jacob here in, in some, I, 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 would, I can only understand spiritual and supernatural way with knowledge the Spirit is giving him. He by faith is blessing each of his sons and telling of the future of Israel. And finally, how this connects to Jacob and his faith is that in this blessing, there's a commissioning, there's a bestowing, there's a giving of an inheritance. There's an inheritance being given to each of these sons. Now, I'm not going to go through each one of the sons today. If you are very interested in the words that are spoken to each one of the sons, you can get a good commentary, you can do study on your own. But I'm going to look today at two particular aspects of this inheritance that Jacob passes on to his sons. He passes on a birthright, and he passes on a bloodline. Right? Those are two different words that maybe you're not familiar with. But the birthright that he passes on, he passes on a, a birthright would be um, an inheritance given to a firstborn son. Uh, the birthright was, in Israel, a double portion of the material inheritance every Israelite would pass on to their firstborn son. So that's one aspect of this inheritance that Jacob has that he wants to give to his children and he wants to pass on this right, this birthright of the firstborn son, this double portion of material blessing. But Jacob actually has another, uh, another portion of his inheritance to give and that is this bloodline. Now th this was particular to the family of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They had a particular blessing of promise given first to Abraham, passed on to Isaac, given now to Jacob, and now Jacob is passing on to one of his sons a particular blessing of promise passed through the line until Messiah comes to bless the nation. Now generally we would think of the birthright and the bloodline, the birthright and the blessing of the bloodline together. But in Jacob's life, we actually saw through episodes in Jacob's life that Jacob actually came into this inheritance in two different episodes, right? When he was young, he deceived his brother with a bowl of soup. Remember that story? I mean, this is Jacob. This is when Jacob was the bad guy, right? This is when Jacob was Jacob, the heel grabber deceiver. And uh, his brother went out hunting. He came back in from hunting. And, Jake, and, and he's like, oh, I'm so hungry. And Jacob's in the meanwhile cooked up this soup. And Esau's like, oh, I'd give you anything for that soup, man. And Jacob's like, well, what would you give me? Oh, I'd give you anything for that soup. Well, sell me your birthright. And Jacob's like, all right, here. And so he, that's how he came into that inheritance. Later, um, and this is another terrible, horrific story of Jacob's treachery. Jacob's not a good guy. His dad is blind and old and can't see. And he says to his firstborn son Esau, go and go hunt for me and go catch me some game. I'd really love you to cook me some of that food I really like. Can you go and do that for me, son? And then I'll bless you with the bloodline. And Esau's like, yeah, I'll go out and do that for you, dad. And then uh, Jacob literally like, I'm going to put on Esau's clothes. And I, I, Esau was apparently a really hairy man. So he's like, I'm going to get some like skins, animal skins, put them on. And I'm going to go to my dad. I'm going to be like, hey, dad, I'm Esau. 
And dad's like, why do you sound like that? And he's like, I don't know, I've got a cold. I don't know. But he, he deceives his father. And so his father lays hand on, on Jacob, thinking it's Esau. And he, and, he, and, he, and he gives this prayer, this prophetic prayer of blessing of the bloodline onto Jacob. And so Jacob actually comes into that inheritance of birthright and bloodline. He comes into it through treachery and deceit. But he has it, and now he's going to pass it on to his sons. And that's, that's where we're at today. We're, going to look at the, that's, we're really going to look at two things. How is he going to pass on this, this birthright and this bloodline? But again, there's the third theme of, of Jacob has now come to faith. He's not going to wait for his sons to trick him out of this inheritance. He, by faith, is going to pass on this inheritance. And I'll show you a kind of a unique way. So chapter 48 just the main, I'm just going to hit the main point today of each chapter. Chapter 48, the main point of chapter 48 is this. Joseph's sons receive the birthright. And the significance of that is it foretells the national prominence, prominence of the house of Ephraim. The of Genesis 48 is that the inheritance of the firstborn, the double portion of the house of Jacob, is going to be given to actually Joseph. Joseph is going to receive the birthright. He's going to receive the double portion. Now, Joseph's not going to receive it um, himself. In fact, Joseph is the 11th born son. Right? Joseph's the, 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 the 11th born son. And so Jacob's not just going to bypass 10 sons to give Joseph uh, the birthright. That, that could cause a great deal of family uh, conflict. Uh, later in, uh, in the law given to Israel, that actually was illegal to bypass the older sons to give the birthright to the younger under the law. And so Jacob's not just going to give Joseph, the 11th born, the, the right of the firstborn. What he does, though, is he finds a loophole. And what he does is he actually calls Joseph to him and says, bring your sons here. And then what he does is he actually adopts Joseph's sons to be his own sons. So he takes Joseph and he's like, I'm going to adopt your sons. And he, 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 he calls them and he says, now your two sons who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt are mine. Ephraim and Manasseh are mine as Reuben and Simeon are. Right? Reuben was the firstborn and Simeon was the secondborn. And what he's basically doing is I'm adopting your son be my sons, and I'm giving them, I'm assigning to them the status of the firstborn. So Joseph, or so, so Jacob assigns, adopts them, assigns them the same status as Reuben and Simeon. He grants a status to these Egyptian-born sons of Joseph to be among the firstborn of his household. And, and so he gives them each a portion, and by giving each of Joseph's sons two sons, a portion, Joseph is by proxy given the firstborn status. Joseph receives the firstborn status. He receives the double portion. In fact, as Jacob lays his hands on Ephraim and Manasseh, it says in verse 15, he blessed Joseph. So he's blessing Joseph through these sons, giving Joseph, in effect, uh, the double portion. The funny part is, as he does this, as he prays over his sons and, and crosses his arms, Joseph gets really mad, and it's really ironic how mad Joseph gets. Joseph gets really mad because uh, he crossed his arm, so his right, arm, his right hand, the, son, the, the hand of prominence, was on the younger son. And Joseph, ironically, gets really mad, and he says, Dad, 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 you've got to stop. You've got your hand on the wrong son. He's not the older one, he's the younger one. 
And it's kind of ironic, Joseph literally just bypassed 10 of his older sons, you know, to get the birthright. And now suddenly he's talking about what's fair and appropriate and the right way to do things. You know, this is, it's, it's kind of, I read it last night and I just kind of laughed in that Joseph gets angry. But Jacob's not just playing favorites here. By faith and through the Holy Spirit, he's prophetically foretelling the future of the tribes of Ephraim and Manasseh. He tells them that Ephraim, the younger, will become the more prominent brother whose offspring will become a multitude of nations. And actually, that's what happens. So like when Ephraim, uh, when the 12 tribes settle in the land of Canaan, they both receive an inheritance uh, in the land. In fact, Manasseh actually receives a double portion, you could say. He gets uh, East Manasseh over here. But in the land of Canaan, on this side of the Jordan River, they both get an inheritance in the land. But later what happens, and, and this is about a thousand, well, this is about a thousand years after, Joseph, after Jacob makes this prophecy. A thousand years later. Hundreds of years after they settle in the land. The, when they settle in the land, after a time, they become a kingdom. Right? The first king is Saul. He's a bad king. The second king is David. He's a, a man after God's own heart. And the kingdom's unified. David's son Solomon. It's still a unified kingdom. But after David's son Solomon dies, the kingdom has a bloody civil war. And the kingdom splits into two. It splits into Israel in the north and Judah in the south. And during that time of that divided kingdom, Ephraim becomes the prominent tribe of the northern kingdom. And basically what happens is the tribe of Ephraim kind of absorbs all the other ten northern tribes. It becomes the prominent firstborn. And, And so in the Bible when you're reading, particularly in the prophets, sometimes the northern kingdom of Israel is called Israel, and sometimes it's simply just called Ephraim. That's the whole territory here, whereas Judah is in the south. Jeremiah 31.9, for example, God is prophesying over this northern kingdom, and he says, I'm a father to Israel. Ephraim is my firstborn son. So Genesis 48 is all about this explanation of how Ephraim gets this status of firstborn. Genesis 49 is about Judah receiving the bloodline blessing. And this is the part where you know, people really get excited about this section. After he bestows the right of the firstborn to Joseph through his son, Jacob calls all of his sons forward in Genesis 49 and one by one pronounces blessings and cursings and prophesies over each of his sons. Now, in regards to the royal bloodline, who comes up first? Well, the first one to come up is Reuben. And again, Reuben is passed over. He's discredited because of his lust and his power. Jacob declares to Reuben, he says, you're the preeminent son, you're the firstborn son. I don't think he's trying to rub it in or anything there, but you're the preeminent son, you're the firstborn son, but you will not have preeminence as you have actually come into your father's bed, my bed, and defiled it. It was a challenge. Reuben had slept with his father's concubine, and many commentators believe it was a challenge to his father's authority. Interesting, back in that picture, Reuben's descendants don't settle in Canaan. They fade out of national history. No prophet, judge, or king ever comes from the tribe of Reuben. He moves on to Simeon and Levi. Simeon and Levi are brothers. Weapons are violence are their sword. Let not my soul come into their counsel. O my glory, be not joined to their company. 
For in their anger they killed men, their wilfulness they hamstrung oxen. Cursed be their anger, it is fierce, and their wrath it's cruel. I'll divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. That's exactly what happened. Simeon, uh, when they get their tribal allotment, Simeon actually just gets a few cities within the, within the region, the territory of Judah. And actually within, within, within generations, the tribe of Simeon has basically been completely assimilated into Judah. It doesn't have a tribe or a territory of its own. Levi never had a territory. The Levites become the priests of Israel. They're given 48 towns in each of the different allotments. So they, 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 they don't actually have a territory to themselves either. So then it comes to Judah. Now we know what God is going to say to Judah, but I just want to think about it for a while. Judah doesn't know what God's going to say to Judah, or Judah doesn't know what Jacob's going to say to Judah, right? We know what, Je- what Jacob says to Judah, but imagine just for, just for a second, just for fun, Judah doesn't know what Jacob is going to say to Judah. And can you imagine being called to your father's side to hear his last words, and you come in, and you wonder, what is dad going to say in his last words? And he looks at your older brother and he says, Reuben, you will not have preeminence because you slept with my wife and you defiled my bed. Simeon and Levi, you are united as brothers in violence. You killed innocent people. You're cursed. Judah, now, Judah knows he was, Judah, Judah was not a good guy either. I can almost imagine Judah's thoughts. Oh no, here it comes. I mean, Judah was the one that came up with the idea of selling Joseph into slavery. Judah is the one who, after they sold his brother into slavery, it says Judah was the only one of the brothers to go out to leave the family to go live among the Canaanites. Judah fathered children with a Canaanite woman, which... At that point in time in Israel's history, they were forbidden, they were told not to do. And then, after his sons pass away, he leads his daughter-in-law on and deceives her for decades to the point where she has, she has no other recourse and she's not necessarily an upstanding person either, but what she does is she, uh, she exposes his hypocrisy by sleeping with him by posing as a prostitute, so he sleeps with her, and then when he wants to kill her because of her immorality, she says, oh, by the way, here's the man who got me pregnant, and holds up his, his items. And Judas says, oh, you're far more righteous than I am. And so as he's seen the, the curse upon Reuben and the curse upon Simeon and Levi, I can imagine when Jacob turns to Judah, Judah's like, oh no, what's dad going to say to me? And what's amazing is what dad says to Judah. Judah, your brother shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From my prey, my son, you've gone up. He stooped down, he crouched the lion, and as a lioness who dares rouse him. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until 
tribute comes to him. To him shall be the obedience of the peoples, binding his foal to the vine, his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He's washed his garments in wine, his vesture in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker in wine and his teeth whiter than milk. The, those last couple um, phrases are kind of weird for us. What it means is basically Judah's going to enjoy such blessing and prosperity that he's going to bind his donkey to a vine. Vines are not very strong. They break a lot. Like if you're a vine dresser, you know how fragile your vines are. But if you don't care if one or two of your vines breaks because you've got a whole bunch of vines, you're prosperous, you've got a lot growing, and you don't care if one or two of them breaks, then yeah, go ahead, tie your donkey to the vine. Tie your donkey even to the choice vine, we've got more. If you've got garments and you need to wash them, you're like, you know what, water, eh, get some wine out here, we'll wash them in wine. Right? I mean, so it's, it's discussing the prosperity of Judah, but really the focus is on the rule. Instead of condemnation, Jacob pronounces the blessing. He, he pronounces to Judah the blessing of this royal bloodline. And verse 10, obviously, verse 10 is the heart of the prophecy. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience, shall be the obedience of the the scepter is the king's staff, and Judah is promised that scepter, that staff, meaning that God chooses to give Judah rule and authority over the kingdom, and then through the kingdom over even all the peoples. God chooses Judah as the leader of the twelve tribes of Israel. Even though the sons of, Joseph, of Jacob all bowed down to Joseph when they came down to Egypt, what he's prophesying is that someday all will bow down to you, Jacob. Or sorry, to you, Judah. And, and this isn't just a prophecy given to the man, Judah, but to, to Judah's descendants. That's probably the illusion of between your feet being a euphemism for Judah's lineage. Basically, he's saying the, the rule, this royal bloodline, Judah, I am giving to you and to those who come from you. And how long will that bloodline last? Well, this phrase in the ESV interprets it until tribute comes to him. It's a difficult line to translate. A lot of English Bibles translate it in different ways because it's a, it's a hard verse to translate. NIV, until he comes to whom it shall till he to whom it belongs shall come, until the coming of the one whom it belongs. NASB or the King James Version both say until Shiloh comes. Um, it's a hard verse to translate. But but every translation, whatever translation you favor or commentators favor, all agree this line predicts the rise of the Davidic kingdom, the establishment of the Israelite empire. And in the context of the book of Genesis, this is the point, in the context of the book of Genesis, we've been waiting since Genesis chapter 3 for this servant to come, for this offspring to come who's going to crush Satan's head and restore God's righteous rule. That's who we're waiting for in the book of Genesis. We thought maybe it was Noah, right? He's the only righteous one left on the earth, and yet he gets out of the ark and gets drunk and dies. Not Noah. We thought maybe it was Abraham, and while Abraham was a man of faith, he also dies, not bringing in the promise. We, we've been waiting for who is this Messiah deliverer going to be? And now here we find is he's going to come from Judah. And so these chapters, 
In these chapters, as an expression of faith in the promises of God, understanding Egypt is not Eden, Egypt is not the promised land, and foretelling the future of his sons who will become these tribes of a great nation, Jacob gives his inheritance. He gives the birthright of the firstborn to Joseph through Ephraim, and he gives the royal bloodline of blessing through Judah. And I showed you before, these two tribes actually become uh, two houses of Israel. In fact, that's what they're called. They're called the house of Ephraim and the house of Judah when they're divided. And, and so what we have in Genesis 48 and 49 sets the stage for the next thousand years of Israel's history. That's what excites the Jewish people about these chapters. Right? It's like, ah, oh, here's, here's now we get the next couple thousand years of our history in this book. But I want to show you an amazing passage that blew it blew my soul wide open when I read it this week. In the book of Ezekiel. Because Ezekiel prophesies that the birthright and the bloodline, it's like, will these remain separate forever? These birthright and this bloodline, will they remain separated? And Ezekiel 37 says, no, they won't. They'll be joined back again someday. So in Ezekiel 37, it says this. Ezekiel's a prophet. He's living in the time after both the northern and the southern kingdom have gone into exile. And there's no, but no, nothing left. And he gives this prophecy. The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, take a stick and write on it for Judah and the people of Israel associated with him. And then take another stick and write on it for Joseph, the stick of Ephraim, and all the house of Israel associated with him. Take these two sticks, Ezekiel, and then slap them together. Join them together. Use some crazy glue, right? Join them together into one stick so that they may become one in your hand. And when your people say to you, won't you tell us what you mean by these? Say to them, thus says the Lord God, behold, I'm to take the stick of Joseph that's in the hand of Ephraim and the tribes of Israel associated with them, and I will join it with the stick of Judah, and I will make them one stick that they may be, be one in my hand. When the sticks on which you write are in your hand before their eyes, oh, sorry, when the sticks in which you write on them are one before their eyes, Say to them, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will take the people of Israel from all the nations which they have gone, and I will gather them from all, and I will bring them to their own land, and I will make them one nation in the land on the mountains of Israel. And one king shall be king over them all, and they shall no longer be two nations, no longer divided into two kingdoms. They shall not defile themselves anymore with their idols or detestable things, or with any of their transgressions, but I will save them from all the backslidings which which they have sinned, and I will cleanse them, and they'll be my people, and I'll be their God. So take those two sticks, Ephraim and Judah, and put them together, because it's going to happen again. But when is it going to happen? He says in the next verse, my servant David. Now he's not talking about David the king, he's talking about the son of David, the Messiah. He says, my servant David shall be king over them. And they shall all have one shepherd. They shall walk in my rules and be careful to obey my statutes. They will dwell in the land that I will give to my servant Jacob where your fathers lived. They and all their children, their children's children shall dwell there forever. And David, read this as, and Jesus my servant shall be their prince forever. 
I will make a covenant of peace with them. It shall be an everlasting covenant with them and I'll set them in their land and I'll multiply them and I'll set my sanctuary in their midst forevermore. My dwelling place will be with them and I will be their God and they will be my people and then the nations will know that I'm the Lord who sanctifies Israel when my sanctuary is in their midst forevermore. See, this is what this promise, this is, this is why Hebrews chapter 11 says, by faith Jacob blessed the sons of Joseph, is because Jacob was foreseeing this. Jacob is, by, in blessing his sons, Jacob is foreseeing that there's a future for Israel, and he's foreseeing that this future will come when Messiah comes. When the firstborn of all creation receives the birthright inheritance allotted to him. When the royal bloodline that was promised through to to, to Eve, that the seed of the woman will come and will crush Satan. They will be united again in one man, one shepherd, one Messiah, one King, Jesus Christ. This is awesome because it's so amazing now how the book of Genesis presents these two brothers, Joseph and Judah, and how it presents to us a picture of this one man, one shepherd, one Messiah, Jesus Christ. I've said it before in the sermon series, Jesus is the greater Joseph. He's the one who was favored by his father. He was, Jesus is the one who was robed in glory, yet Jesus is also the one who's despised by his brother. Jesus was the one who's conspired against. Jesus is the one who took a form of a servant. Jesus is the one who lived in great humility among the godless. Jesus is the one who was also falsely accused, who was also unjustly tried, who was also thrown into a pit and supposed to be abandoned to Sheol. He was also raised out of the pit by the will of the king and is now seated at the right hand of the king and he brings deliverance to the nations. He's the greater Joseph. And Jesus is the greater Judah. He's the greater Judah. Now no sin was found in Jesus' mouth like it was found in Judah, but there was one act in Judah's life that, that, that pictured this ministry of Messiah greater than almost any other picture in the Old Testament. It's when his brother is condemned for the love of his father, Judah offers himself to take on the condemnation that was deserved by his brother. And that is this picture of this deliverer, Jesus Christ who for the sake of the love of the Father offers himself to suffer the condemnation for his brother. And he is not ashamed to call us his brothers. Book of Hebrews chapter 2. Jesus. I, I hope you can see now how Jacob's words are an act and an expression of faith. And just in the last minute or so, I want to show you what, what, how might this encourage us today. First thing is, I think it encourages us. I was encouraged. I'm just going to share with you how I was encouraged by this. First thing, like I think I can be encouraged by the faith of a dying man. A man who uses his last breaths to point his children to Messiah. A man who, there was nothing in Jacob that was worthy of or deserving of the love of God. There was nothing in him that was good. There was, he was the heel grabber. He was the deceiver. He lived most of his life on the run from his family. He lived most of his life as, as a vagabond. Yet in his dying breaths, he points his children to the promise of Messiah and the hope of Messiah. He uses his dying breath to testify of the goodness and the love of God. 
And as a dad and as a Christian and, and just as a person, man, that, that encourages me. Man, let, if, if, let the redeemed of the Lord say so is what the Psalms say. If, if God has changed your life, if God has met you, may His praise be on your lips. May His salvation be in your mouth. Don't wait until your dying breath. Don't wait until your dying breath to testify of the goodness of the Lord. Secondly, I think we can marvel at the promised plan of God. We can marvel at the promised plan of God. How he raises up these two sons to prefigure and to point to fulfillment in his plan in Jesus. Genesis always confused me. I'll tell you why. Because in Genesis, we're set up, Genesis, I often say, is a mystery. It's set up to read, in, it's the genre of mystery. We get a promise in the third chapter. We get a problem in the second chapter. Actually, the problem's in the third chapter. We get a problem in the third chapter, right? Sin enters into the world through us because we're wicked in sin and we've turned away from God and we've rebelled against Him. And then we get a promise that a Messiah deliverer is going to come. And then the rest of Genesis is a mystery. Who's this Messiah deliverer? Who's He going to be? And, and, and in Genesis, as you read it, there's candidates that pop up and you think it's going to be that guy, it's going to be that guy, it's going to be that guy. Here it is, here it is. And, and you read it like a mystery going, who is it going to be? And you get to the end, and as a Christian, I know Judah. But I get to the end and suddenly we have like 12 chapters of Joseph and it always kind of confused me. I was like, What? If it's Judah, why, why such an emphasis on, on Joseph? So what I did was, then I went the other way and I said, well, I see what, I see what Moses is doing here, what God's doing here in Genesis. He's really, he does, he's tricking us with Joseph. And he's, he's really hoping, hoping that we get to see actually what he's doing in Judah. And I just kind of read it like that for a year. And, and reading these two chapters has really helped me to just worship God and be like, I see what you're doing now, God. I see you're raising up these two sons, Joseph. You're raising them up to be this picture of your salvation. I see what you're doing here, that one day, even though they're going to be separated, the birthright and the blessing are going to be separated in your plan, in your crazy, unfathomable plan that you set in motion before the foundation of the earth. You plan to unite them again in Jesus Christ. Wow, your plan is amazing. Wow, you're an amazing God. And third... I think these chapters should really get us excited for next week. Do you know why next week? Because it's the start of Advent. I mean, we put our Christmas tree up this week, so we're getting ready. Uh, we started, we decorated our house this week because as, as I'm an American, so my wife is as well, and so she thinks it's the day after American Thanksgiving, so we got to do it. And so we, uh, we put up the Christmas stuff this week, but it should get us really excited for this season. Because this is the season, you don't have to do this, but, but this, at least in our culture, we set this season apart for reflection, for meditation, to fill up our heart with this advent of Christ that someday, that, that this, this Christ who was promised and prophesied has come, and that someday He will return. And we are to get excited about this, because our salvation awaits in his return.